0: Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. This week we've teamed up with a great show called Knowing Animals, which looks at animal rights and animal welfare and features conversations with animal studies scholars from around the world. This is one of two podcasts on animal welfare in horse racing. This one looks at the use of the whip in horse racing. The shows are hosted by Dr. Siobhan O'Sullivan from the University of New South Wales in Australia.
1: Hi guys, welcome to Knowing Animals, a podcast where we talk to animal studies scholars about a piece of their work. I'm Siobhan O'Sullivan, and I do like Knowing Animals. Today we'll be discussing Paul McGreevy's work, Whip Use by Jockeys, in a sample of Australian thoroughbred Races, an observational study which, which appeared in PLOS, I'm not sure is it, PLOS, PLOS 1, in March 2012. Uh, we should also acknowledge Paul's co-authors on this piece. Robert Corkin, Hannah Salvin and Celeste Black. So welcome to the podcast, Paul.
0: Thanks very much.
1: So Paul, can you start by telling us a little bit about what inspired you to do this piece of work?
0: Well, specifically this work is to do with the welfare of racehorses and a lot of my scholarship has been around the welfare of horses. So I did my PhD on stereotypic behavior repetitive behavior in, in stabled horses and they were all race horses um, that was a long time ago just after the war um, thanks for that <laughs> um, and it was um it was looking at the way we treat race horses in in just in, the, in terms of stabling them and uh, it quickly became clear to me even as a PhD student that these horses are treated in in ways to, to get the the maximum physical performance out of them Um, and that means stabling them and giving them um, diets that aren't necessarily what they've evolved to eat Um, so I became I suppose more and more interested in racehorses throughout my academic career. I'm a vet Mm-hmm. And, and I worked as a horse vet for, for quite a few years before mm-hmm. I went back to university, at mm-hmm. the University of Bristol. Mm-hmm. So that's, I suppose, it's been a, a long time in in, in formation. My interests in in this particular issue uh, about the, the the use of the whip mm-hmm. in racing, um, but I have come to realise that it's one of the the iconic issues in certainly in horse welfare. Right. and I think arguably the whip is the most visible form of violence to animals because of course when we see horses racing mm. on TV we, we tend to see the end of the race mm. and that's when um, they attract the most whip use yep. we think it's, it's roughly on average six, six strikes um, per horse per race and um, of course as they are finishing they're generally slowing down they're not speeding up so we're watching tired horses being whipped mm-hmm. in the name of sport and that's something that I think we need to, to debate mm. um, more vigorously.
1: Mm. So do you feel as though the observer notices it as uh, an aggressive act against the animal or do you think that observers tend to not notice the use of the whip or is it just so accepted in our culture that, that we just yeah ignore it? It's a great question, I
0: think there's there's a possibility that all of those things apply Siobhan. Um, We know that the jockeys want to win the race, Mm -hmm. um, and so it's beguiling to imagine that the horse knows exactly what the challenge is, it knows somehow the significance of the finish post and that therefore it's a willing participant in this endeavour. And if you buy into that sort of framework, then you could imagine that the horse views the whip strikes purely as a form of encouragement. Thanks for the encouragement, I needed that. Thanks. Whereas, I suppose, a scientist would look at the horse as a creature of flight. It's Mm -hmm. it's evolved to um, Mm -hmm. live in groups, grazing... Um, and constantly on surveillance for predators, right. and its main source of defence is f- to flee. Right. So that's why right. isn't it isn't. It's especially good at running. Mm-hmm. It's it's evolved to run, and mm-hmm. um, and we've bred the, r- the racehorse to be an ex- exquisite athlete, mm. um, an and extremely athletic animal, and um, they probably do enjoy running. Mm-hmm. Um, In a group, we've probably been able to select horses that actually get some pleasure from that. Um, But there's nowhere in in our selection that we have selected them to enjoy being whipped. Mm. So, can we race them without the whip? Mm. Well, yes. Is there a chance that the whip is um, an analogue of predatory behaviour? Is it akin to. A, a, a predator's claw hitting the, the, the hindquarters well possibly Right. Um, if an animal is f- running out of fear then um, are, we, are we able to defend that position ethically well it becomes more difficult when you appreciate that horses are raced in Norway um, without the whip and have been for the last 30 years mm. so you can race horses without a whip you mm. can still have this sport mm. but you can remove the, these questions about um, horse welfare mm. and and that's the way I think the industry is beginning to appreciate an approach to this problem mm. because to be sustainable in the 21st century mm. we need to ensure that these ethical questions are addressed rather than avoided mm. and I think I'm, I'm certainly here to help the, the racing industry mm. um, develop a, a, an ethical framework to, mm. to aim for mm. It's interesting talking about uh, rules
1: and uh, the the racing industry and frameworks. I saw you on ABC Catalyst, and I thought it was a very interesting piece about uh, the science, what the science is mm-hmm. telling us about whipping, what it might mean to the horse. Uh, and in that program, you also differentiate between the padded whip and the not padded whip, and what that might mean for the horse. So before we go into that science, I'm interested a little bit in the policy. Are you detecting that there is a reception to a taking the science on board when it comes to making a policy decision about this, or are you, are you encountering resistance, or what's your experience across kind of the policy field?
0: Well, I've been, I've been knocked back in approaches that I've made to the racing industry for access to more data. So um, they never ring, they never write. They oh. stop sending flowers <laughs> yeah. and, and so I, it's a shame that, that here is somebody who is actually actively engaged in horse welfare um, and I'm adopting a, an evidence-based approach to the ethical use of, of horses in sport and in leisure activities mm. um, but even even with that, with that pedigree and with those credentials, I, I think I'm being stonewalled. So that's unfortunate, um, but it's my job to to basically create um, a, the evidence that, that informs this sort of debate. Um, I think we owe it to horses to to ensure that the, the the data are prepared for for discussion, and that's that's my job as a scientist. I measure stuff, and um, when we look at the the evidence for the padded whip being an, an advance. Um, the evidence is, is fairly slim mm-hmm. because there's still a, a, a fairly solid core inside the padded whip. Mm-hmm. Um, there is one paper that's looked at the ballistic effects of the padded whip um, right. and it noted that where the padding is held on with this tight binding the, that binding in of itself cannot be padded. Right. So you, the end of the whip is padded it's held on, mm. that padding is held on with some binding mm. that essentially acts as a knot, it, it mm. forms a solid knot mm. and uh, we've found that that at least half of whip strikes are hitting the horse with that, that, that knot. Right. So we, haven't, we can't really be confident that the padded whip is a, a major advance, certainly when we've begun to look at it closely, right. scientifically, right. it doesn't seem to stack up.
1: Right. Could it be a step backwards or it's at least as good and it's just not clear if it's
0: better or not? Well, the old whips were thinner, so they would cut in more. Right. Um, but the, the the sad thing is that when the padded whip was brought in, some trainers were t- were, in, were sending their jockeys to gymnasia to become stronger and, quote, more aggressive with right. the whip. So... <clears throat> It's it's really unfortunate that that some people see this as a weapon. I've had vets say to me, "Well, the jockeys need a weapon." Mm. Leading vets have said that, mm. and it's it's very unfortunate. I mean, if if we look at the way the whip is used in other horse sports, it's really used as just an irritant. Right. So, I mean, I ride every day that I can. I've got horses at home, and I'm lucky enough to to have lots of land to to ride on. Mm. Um, and I carry a whip Mm. in case I get into trouble. Mm. I don't thrash the horse Mm. at all. Um, If you've got a horse that's frightened of something, you just need to really encourage it, and that's what we call negative reinforcement, Mm. which is uh, essentially a form of irritation. Mm. We remove that as soon as the horse responds appropriately. Mm. The problem with the use of the whip in racing is that it's the punters that are demanding it. They have obviously... Place bets on these horses, they want to see them ridden out on their merits. Right. And for them, very crudely, that, that equates to um, hitting with a whip right. rather relentlessly. Right. And the, the rules as they are really only concentrate on the, the use of the whip before the 100 metre mark.
1: Right, right.
0: After the 100 metre mark, there are no real caps on the use of the whip. So that's when the horse really needs protection from the rules and it isn't getting them.
1: Right, yes. So as you said, you're, you're a scientist, you measure things, you're interested in evidence and you're interested in how evidence might influence practice. So in your paper that we're looking at, you found 28 examples of breaches of the whip rules. So were yes. they the rules that pertain to when you can start whipping the horse? Is that the 100 metre rule you're referring to? They were, we looked at, yes, the, the, the breeches came around
0: um, the finish. It's the last 200 metres that we looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that all 28 of those breeches were intentional. Right. Um, some of the time the, the whip was hitting the horse's head, but that was because the whip was being carried on the horse's neck. Um, the the jockeys weren't purposefully whipping the horses on the face Um, so the distribution of of breaches that we reported um, I suppose it reflects what's what's difficult about the rules Mm. because it comes down to um, the steward's ability to detect a breach Mm. and that is always a function of the quality of the footage they're looking at we were lucky to be looking at footage that was t- 2,000 frames per second. Right. The, the stewards have to look at frames that are 25, uh, that footage that is 25 frames per second.
1: Right, <laughs> yeah. So can you tell us how you did gather your evidence? What was the design of the experiment?
0: Um, well, I was given the tapes. Oh, you have the tapes, okay. Yes.
1: So they were already captured for another yeah. purpose, and then they're in your possession for analysis. Yes. Right, yes. okay. So, and they were high quality. Oh, that's good. And so then you were looking at indentation on the horses, we is that look, right? Yes,
0: we were able, in with this, this high-speed videography, we were able right. to look at the indeta- indentations that the whip made as it travelled and met the skin. Right. Um, so 83% of the time there was a visible indentation. Right. And this, this, these data were from two observers working independently and whenever they disagreed we discarded a finding so we only reported where there was concordance.
1: Okay great and so what's what is the significance then of what you refer to as a visible indentation?
0: Well the the video files that that we looked at are available in various um, in various contexts and so you're Audience, our audience can can look at the, uh, what we what we're talking about. And there's a photo of, it, of an indentation in the paper. Right. Um, what it does is is it describes how the skin is deformed by the impact of the whip. Mm. Um, and so one has to consider that deformed skin is going to fire off what are called nociceptors, right. the, the the receptors in the skin that pick up pain. Mm. And so that's why we were interested in the extent to which the skin was indented or, de- or deformed by mm. a whip strike.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so on the Catalyst program where they talk about your work and the use of the padded whip and the non-padded whip, the a journalist actually whipped herself. Uh, and that struck me as looking very painful. Um, have you whipped yourself? <laughs> have you, are you that kind of... Uh, Experimental scientists.
0: Yes, I've I've done that. I shared that with with Jonica Newby um, ahead of the Catalyst program, right? Um, just so that she could see what I had seen when I'd been struck. Right. Um, so we're using a, a thermographic camera yep. that picks up the, the heat right. that's coming off the skin. Yes, and you if you go to the conversation, mm-hmm. you can see the video of my horrible, ugly, oh, hairy you've leg. Oh, have had
1: it done as well. Okay, so that's at the conversation. Yes. yes. yes.
0: and And it, it, it's clear that you get an inflammatory response in, in humans right. as a result of the, the whip strike. Right. And those of us who've been subject to corporal punishment will relate to that. Right. Um, it, it takes a while for the, the, the inflammation to bloom. Right. Um, but it's there nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was, I I was I was also bruised by the the impact, and you can see the knot that I've been talking about on the, the still image at the end of that video okay, file.
1: Okay, okay. And so, it's your belief that horses have a similar re- response or a similar. Well,
0: I I don't know. I'd really like the racing industry to pick up these cameras and and join me in my interest in this possibility oh, I've, I've um, got some pushback from the racing industry, um, right. we've, we've written to the racing industry but they've, they've said that they don't want to be part of any study right. um, but there are vets within the industry who accept that this is a valid approach right. um, for instance there are vets in Victoria who've said that it would be a good way of monitoring where the horses are being struck right. because Australia is one of 40 countries that signed up to an international agreement um, on wagering and, and racing, right. and as part of that agreement, Australia undertook to prohibit the whipping of the horse on the flank. Right. Now, we found that 70% of whip strikes were hitting the flank in our observational study. Right. So the use of thermography could potentially better police that international right. undertaking that we've, we've made.
1: Right. So in terms of policy change, what, what are some of the things you'd like to see? I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm detecting that you'd like to be able to gather more evidence, so you'd like to have better access so you can do more research. And then with a view to what, coming to a conclusion as to whether the whip is painful, is detrimental, are they the kinds of things or, or not?
0: Well, I think we need the evidence to inform right. the debate. Mm-hmm. The precautionary principle is that the whip would hurt and we shouldn't be whipping horses. Right. Um, Especially tired horses um, and, and where there is a, a problem from an ethical perspective in defending that, that practice. Right. If you're using the whip to, to remain safe on a horse, then, then there's a stronger argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that in Norway the jockeys haven't reported an increased risk of injury right. over the last 30 years suggests that we need to look closely at those Norwegian data and work out how we can race safely and effectively and ethically and that will provide a sustainable future for the, for the industry
1: perhaps Norway is a destination for you to do some research
0: well I'd, I'm happy to, to engage with the Norwegians the problem is that the larger racing countries dismiss Norway as being a minnow oh,
1: okay.
0: um, now that's it, it's true that it's a small racing country Yes. But if we were to conduct a study that included horses not being whipped and races in which horses were not whipped, mm-hmm. um, we would take a long time to get the sort of data they've already got for us. So, you know, that, that we're talking about at least 4,000 races that have been conducted without the whip. Right. Just on the back of an envelope. We've worked that out. Now, yes. if, if if we in the larger racing countries had to wait for 4,000 races to be conducted under um, some sort of animal ethics approval, Mm. Um, we'd be waiting a long time. So it it seems a shame that we overlook the the Norwegian experience just because it's a small racing country. They're still thoroughbreds. They're still racing. People are still betting on them.
1: Yes. And presumably they could still tell us something about pain receptors in horses
0: or response to different stimulus and things like that. So That's right. Um, I think this is an area that's, that's quite compelling, actually. The, the latest evidence on the histology, which is the tissue structure of, of horse skin, suggests that horses have um, a thinner protective layer and more of the, of the C fibres, which are the, the pain-detecting nerve endings. Mm-hmm. So the early evidence from the histological records, is that, uh, that horses are probably more likely to pick up pain when struck, mm. despite the fact that they've co- they're they covered in hair.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah. And is there evidence coming out to the contrary, or is it kind of one one uh, lot of evidence suggesting that the whip might be problematic and kind of no other evidence at all on, on the other side? Or are there researchers doing... Co- producing contrary
0: data there are very few very few researchers producing contrary data there's there's one peer-reviewed paper that suggests um that tries to argue that that um that the hand that you use to carry the whip is evidence of of the use of the whip in steering yeah. um but that and that was a study conducted in essence to counter a previous paper i'd produced right. um, but the the it was worth having a look forensically at the two papers because you can see that the data are very similar but the interpretations are quite different
1: that's interesting so similar data set different interpretation yes. and this yeah. is one of the reasons why we have policy contestation i guess mm-hmm.
0: yeah um but on the whole there are very few papers that have countered my work right yeah. um the racing industry in the UK produced a, a whip review in 2011 and it presents to the world as a scientific document but when a number of scientists and vets sat down and looked at this closely we realised that there wasn't much science in it. Right. So uh, at all more
1: politics science. It, it
0: was it was presented as science right. um, but we were so moved by the the, um, the the claims that it was making in the name of science that we actually wrote a critique of that review
1: yeah.
0: and that's just been published right. that's available uh, at an open access journal called mm-hmm. animals mm-hmm. Wonderful. that uh, many of your audience will be familiar with right and so you can see um, how we have um, shed light on, on the, the claims that were made by that, that review. Right. So to answer your question, the industry is producing counterclaims and sometimes it, 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 it argues that it's producing scientific counterclaims, but I'm, I'm not compelled by what I've seen so far.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay Paul, well, thank you very much, that's been really interesting. Now, I end by asking my guests five quick questions. The questions, I'm just thinking out loud, I don't know if they're going to translate terribly well because you are a different kind of guest. A lot of the people I've been speaking to so far have been philosophers or theorists who have a very uh, kind of strictly animal rights position and your uh, work is much more animal welfare focused in the kind of the very scientific understanding of that expression, animal welfare. So I like to talk to a a wide variety of people, I'm very interested in evidence, I'm very interested in policy making, Um, I'm not someone who's in favour of racehorsing however, so in these questions typically I use the expression pro-animal scholarship, but by that I mean uh, not just a scholarship about animals as you might come across kind of in any kind of veterinary degree, but something that's trying to I guess put forward perhaps a aggressive um, or maybe a stronger moral case for animals so anyway we'll see how we go um, can you recall the first piece of pro-animal scholarship you ever read
0: well I think it would probably be Ruth Harrison's Animal Machines Oh, really? Um, yes but I, went to, I was fortunate to go to a vet school which was a leader in animal welfare and right. um, that's the University of Bristol right. which is where John Webster taught me as an undergraduate so oh, I met John um, in 1982. And right. he was, so he's been, um, I'm being, I've been mindful of, of his work since then yes. and um, we remain very good friends.
1: Oh, wonderful. Um,
0: he's coming here in, to Australia in, in um, November so we're looking forward to, oh, to welcoming you. him and um, yeah, he'll be doing some lectures around, around the country. Oh, great. Um, so he of course wrote A Cool Eye Towards Eden, Animal Welfare A Cool Eye Towards Eden, right. which um, certainly does embrace um, a new approach to the use of animals. Yeah, and yeah. more recently he's written um, Animal Husbandry Regained, right. which is a, a very good read. I, I commend that to your audience. Yeah, um, and so, yeah, that was the first yeah, right. sort of and encounter. Well, is, right, well, that's
1: great. It's a classic. Yeah. So can you recall the first piece of pro-animal scholarship you ever wrote?
0: Well, I suppose my first book, which was called Why Does My Horse, took a horse-centric view, right. like, trying to explain the world from the, the horse's perspective. Wonderful, lovely. So that was
1: in 96. Hmm. So can you name one animal studies scholar who's had a big impact on you?
0: Well I note what you're saying about the, the, the definitions of these terms, yes. but I my, my whole approach to Animals and their their needs was changed when I started my PhD. Well, well prior to when to started my PhD, um, with C- Professor Christine Nichol, right. Um who has probably changed the um, the world of the the laying hen more than anybody else I can think of. Right. And right. um, are you yeah. familiar with her? No, well, I'm um, not. So, well, Christine is a zoologist. Originally, she yeah. came out of Marion Stamp Dawkins. Lab um, in Oxford, mm. and she published in Nature, mm. probably the first animal welfare paper in Nature. Yeah. And Nature's a big deal, So, yeah, she she simply showed that the, the, the effect of, of confinement on wing flapping, right, and and developed a test that we we all use nowadays, uh, which is called post-inhibitory rebound, right. which shows how the build up the, in motivation to perform a behaviour. Increases when that behaviour is denied. Right, and then
1: that gets um, channeled into other kind of behaviour. It can, yes. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, interesting. So, what's the most important thing academics can do for animals?
0: Well, I think they can provide the data that inform a debate. I mean, it's wonderful to have a passion for animals, but you need the equipment, the the armory, if we're going to use a weapon like term to inform the debate and, and to inform policy change so yes. without animal welfare scientists mm. um, I think the animal protection movement would would still be in the doldrums Right, yeah,
1: wonderful And So if you had the power to change one thing about the human-non-human-animal relationship
0: what would it be? Well I, I do think that the whip in racing is an iconic issue it, it, it's, it's worth imagining what, what it would be like if we didn't have that televised mm. if children didn't see, see that as being an appropriate way to treat animals right. in the name of sport right. um, but you know it will happen eventually mm. and someday a child will say granddad did they really whip horses mm. in races mm. um, it, I think it these these iconic issues that have a sort of it's difficult to to actually quantify how powerful they can be Mm. but if it if it has an effect on a barometer of of how we make our judgments on Mm. animal welfare matters then we need to make sure that we are not whipping animals in Mm. public Mm. and cheering at the same time Mm. Mm. Um, but in terms of changes that i'd like if i if i ruled the world i would make changes to the way we breed animals right. I would I, I think we should if, if, if whip use in, in racing is the most visible form of violence to animals then the most preventable form of cruelty to animals is arguably inherited disorders in animals right. I and mean, if we breed for extreme types as we do mm. in, in um, dogs and cats and some horses mm. um, then we are creating suffering mm. Mm. and so for, from a veterinary perspective mm. Preventative medicine is always more powerful than reactive medicine. Yes. And so I've been fortunate enough to, to, to gather together all of the vet schools and we're now hoping to pull data from all of the, the vet clinics in Australia so yeah. that we can actually map inherited disorders in right. animals and right. begin to work out which ones are the most important from a welfare um, impact perspective. But
1: yeah. It's fascinating, you always thought that you know, the mantra was nature likes diversity, and yet when it comes to particularly companion animals, well, that's the, the thing that I'm most aware of, I guess, uh, people don't like diversity at all. They like uh, standard types and particular breeds, and uh, so, I mean, the diversity's being lost. I mean, that kind of... that natural protection against inherited disorders is being lost. Is that a fair Well, if you, if you
0: follow the rules of dog breeding, pedigree dog breeding mm. you, you close the stud book and you don't allow new genetic material in so right. that diversity is lost I see, I see your point mm. the dog for some reason mm. is the most morphologically diverse of all the mammals right. uh, and so that's why the same dog Canis familiaris mm. is able to take the form of a greyhound, a great dane mm. or a chihuahua mm. Mm. I know it's hard. and so but those animals can all interbreed they're the same species Um, what we do when we breed for extremes is we satisfy our needs Um, and it's clear that we are demanding a a shorter skull in dogs and that comes with a lot of breathing problems Um, there are over a thousand inherited disorders in dogs now and these are largely the product of um, small genetic bottlenecks or tight genetic bottlenecks that we call breeds, mm. um, and also the, the demand from breed standards to breed for extreme types, mm. and we need to address those 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 two flaws in mm. our breeding practice mm. because we want healthy, long lived, um, and um, pl- pleasant mm. ca- companions. Yeah. A lot of the dogs we're breeding are um, looking down the barrel of a short. And unpleasant life.
1: Right. So, what are you working on next,
0: for? Well, I'm focused on the on this project called Vet Compass, which will bring the, the data from all the, the various vet practices around the country. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to probably keep me out of trouble for the next five years. Right. Um, but I will, of course, retain my interest in in the welfare of, of dogs and cats um, and and horses. And, and I've got this focus on companion animals. Right. Um, so I, I always have students in my lab who are able to work on those topics with me. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at the the epidemiology of um, disease and, and welfare impacts on mm. um, a very broad scale, but mm. I still will have projects um, for, for my PhD students that allow them to drill down into specific issues. Mm.
1: Great. Right. So how can people find out more about your work?
0: Well, I suppose... The University of Sydney website would be the best place to, mm-hmm. to start, um, so that's uh, fairly easy to find. As long as you can spell my name, you can find me yeah. at the University
1: <laughs> of Sydney. Wonderful. Okay, well thank you to our listeners for joining us for Knowing Animals, the podcast, where we talk to animal studies scholars about their work. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Knowing underscore Animals, or on Facebook at Knowing Animals Past and Present. Also, don't forget to tell others about us and to review the podcast on iTunes. Reviews make it easier for others to find us. I'm Siobhan Sullivan and I do like knowing animals.
0: See ya. If you want to go to the website of Knowing Animals, Knowing Animals, that's all one word, knowinganimals.libsyn.com. that's
1: libsy